This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. Welcome back to the second part of our conversation with Professor Martin Roderick, where we examine the working lives of professional athletes. We will jump in in the middle of the conversation, so it's a good idea to listen to the first part before this one. Martin is the head of department at the Department of Sport and Exercise Science at Durham University, and his work is focused on the work and careers in professional sport and the related issues of work-life balance, family life, and mental health. I hope you find the conversation as stimulating and thought-provoking as I did. So I guess one of my questions would be that we talked a lot already about this working context, difficult relations and having this competition and like your real competitors are in your team and not in the opponent team and all those things. But can we maybe distinguish between the meaning of work or meaning of sport work and then maybe the more personal meaning of sport? So whether some of this <laughs> meaning is is preserved or is also the experience of doing sport, just that I'm now working hard. That's not the way that we start playing sport when we are children, that it's more of this developing a career in sport. And I'm quite interested in, like, I studied distance runners and some of them were professional for a part of their running life. But after that professional sport work stopped, a lot of them continued running and there was almost like this romantic return to this more pure motives of running, you know, that after that you just run for the sake of running and you don't have to be any more like making anyone happy or winning competitions. So I wonder if we can make that distinction and if we think of footballers who you can talk about yourself as well, but all the other participants that once the professional career is over, what kind of meaning do they then find uh, from playing yeah well it's a really interesting question and i think understanding that that journey i think is a really important one um i i love how you describe almost the childlikeness of the the way in which we learn about our sports and and, and i really grasp that and i think this is why i i think these these academies are so morally corrupt because they take that away you know, uh, I remember as a young, at a very young age, but when I was a young footballer, it didn't become serious until I was 14, 15, 16 years old. And I would like to see some return to that. Um, you know, I could still go out into the streets, put, put our jumpers down for goalposts and play. And, and that, and I loved that. And I still love that, Nura. I still see a nice patch of green grass. And I think, oh, you know, if I wasn't in my fifties, I could go out and still, you know, kick around. And I think players do go on a journey with this, but 
But I have spoken to so many for whom their careers become meaningless that they look back on the shirts that they that they've accumulated and and it brings nothing but other other than poor memories for them really they they have to and i think one of the things that is perhaps poorly articulated through all sports is the way in which these journeys unfold sooner or later they all recognize what's happening to themselves and they and then this is where this disidentification comes in for me they if you can settle on the fact that you recognize what's happening to you but know you can develop a space for yourself where you understand what this all means and you can be content with that i think then you have a more sort of existentially secure person who can then perhaps leave their sport without accumulating the kinds of issues that we read so awfully about some athletes um i think that's more healthy Whilst people might not like to hear that it's better for for the for the um, for the athletes to recognise their exploitation and, and realise their alienated character, it's perhaps more healthy for the athletes to get to that point. Then they can move forward in a way where they can say, "Well, actually, I I, I grasp the playlight things that I've always loved in it." I, I always sort of say there was a little boy inside of all the footballers that I ever met who still loved to kick around. But that little kid had been sort of crushed out of them and, and they had to try and refind it. And, and so I, I think athletes' um, relationship to their sport is a really interesting one. Uh, I still think it's, I mean, I, I wouldn't recommend more research on, on retirement. I think there's been enough of that. But I don't know that that research has been done particularly well in terms of the, the sort of meanings that people attach to to their sports, not least because, you know, athletes leave no matter what sport it is and, and they're riddled with pain and, in you know, the consequences of injury. I didn't meet any athlete over the age of 24 or 25 who didn't almost for every event they went to need a strapping or take painkillers or or something like that you know and that that knocks on um of course um i i no longer go running because i don't have a right knee you know it's sooner or later it finds you out um but i do know a lot of athletes who are much more are much happier with what's happened to them and they can see how hard it was for for them to have achieved what they managed to achieve and, and how close they were to the 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 perhaps the very elite and how close they were to those people who don't quite make the professional standards you know there's a wafer thin line between all of them um and and their careers can unfold you know and i spoke to a number who's and i still do who who just events sort of supersede the sorts of things that they they had ambitions for they they had injuries at, at, at inappropriate times it sent their careers off in particular kinds of ways um and they never quite recovered from it and that and i and i've spoken to rugby players uh, track and field athletes swimmers and these things you know you can't predict them um it that brings the stories that as fans of sport we love to read that's you know it's the you know the what you might call the meat and potatoes of, of for journalists in that sense, but for the athletes themselves, um, you know they're they they're real transition points, they're real um, momentous, fateful occasions. Um, but you know, again, 
all those meanings that 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 I love reading about in in your work for some of the athletes I meet I think their sport has disabled their their ability to to really think through those meanings in a way which might be beneficial to them uh because all the social relations around them from earlier uh, the earliest ages have been talking so much around the kinds of um, performance narrative that, that Katrina Douglas in the podcast that I listened to spoke so beautifully about, you know, and, and you know how hard it was for the golfers who didn't follow that performance narrative to 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 keep hold of that that idea that they weren't doing it just to achieve to have success in a way that everybody else would would be able to understand and see and that's so hard i think um but but to try to find a way to support athletes through their journey where they could refine those those thoughts and feelings and reconnect with them i think that's one of the sort of missing links for me, one of the things that would connect hopefully my work to that real world that's out there. You know, I'm very aware. I mean, I have lots of friends in in sport in really important places, but I struggle to connect ideas to them. Um, they see me so much as this sort of ivory tower person. And, you know, I, I, and I can think abstractly. And it's because I struggle to articulate my thoughts in a way which are are easy to consume in bite-sized chunks. Um, and I, I still think, you know, uh, that's missing. Certainly the athletes that I, that I felt that I've met over the time who have survived sport um, are those that perhaps didn't go into their sport so early. Perhaps they had more options on the table. Certainly when you listen to Katrina talk, she could have done a number of things quite quite late into her teenage years. She, she had options. And I've come across a number of athletes who had that. You know, were they going to play rugby or basketball or, um, or others that stayed on in university for longer? Mm, yeah, I've seen that as well. Yeah. But mm. They had a security about them. Um, a self-assuredness about them that I feel, felt was probably largely lacking from those athletes who, who, for what in one way or another, came to make up their mind early about what their their goal might be, um, even if they came to regret that over the course of time. Um, and and I find that really interesting um, to find people who are willing and able to articulate these different stories, to get those different stories out there in a way that everybody can consume without it being a threat. And again, I come back to this, you know, I'm fascinated by, um, you know, that that Raymond Williams idea of a structure, structure of feeling. So you don't feel guilty about thinking in ways that may be counter to that performance narrative that you can arrest that production of those production of guilt feelings and what you said earlier was that like a lot of athletes are telling you things that they would never ever say in the public and also your paper on disidentification that 
I keep citing that as well. I think that's such important work to be showing that, you know, not all the athletes are buying into this dominant cultural ideology that is there in the football club. But just like you say that one of these challenges is that this remains this uh, individual resistance and by they are keeping that to themselves that you know i'm not buying into that but it doesn't really contribute to a broader change of culture so they would never you know talk about that publicly yeah yeah i I found that hard actually because it's the one thing it's a threat to sports science i think it's a threat to the coaches and we've seen a professionalization of coaching which has improved standards of coaching but it's brought other ways of thinking. Um, uh, I mean, one of the, the ideas, Nura, that I'm struggling with now, and um, uh, I, I, and at this point you might think I don't know what you're talking about, but it's the sort of anxieties that wrap around the ideas of privilege, this notion that connected to a labour of love, it's a privilege to be doing um, what you're doing as an athlete. It's a pr- privilege to represent it's a privilege to have a chance to do a job that so many other people would would give their back teeth to do in that sense. And I, I, I'm fascinated by what I think are the, the the anxieties, the mental health implications for that notion of privilege. And it might be connected with affluence, of course, particularly with professional football. People assume that they earn a lot of money, but you know that's an assumption that's made for a lot of athletes. But also the sort of a, the privilege of being, the privilege of doing something that other people might want to do, and I, and I'm really fascinated by that idea, and the kind of ways in which mopped up in that idea of privilege is a sort of a sacrificial contract that, of course, you'd give up other things to be doing the one thing that everybody assumes you should be doing. Um, and, and, I, and I'm struggling along with those kinds of, you know, the anxieties and discontents of privilege for professional athletes in one fashion or another. And I, I go back and I, um, you know, I've pushed some of my doctoral students to think um, in terms of Pierre Bourdieu in this respect. Um, not that I'm a massive devotee of his, but I think the ideas of sort of cultural, economic, social and symbolic capital help think through these notions of of privilege and and tied up in that is that sense of the self that's in there a lonely self but you know you might improve your your economic capital and you might improve in some respects your symbolic capital but i think it has detrimental impacts the notion of privilege to cultural and social uh, forms of capital and I, and I and I wonder you know few people have talked about um these kinds of ideas and it's the sort of things that I'm you know if anyone listening wants to to help me do this I, I'd love to hear f- from them um I I'm I'm rich in ideas or at least I like to think that but poor in time um and finding the headspace to to think some of these things through but um you know I I think I I gave this this example earlier of this this young boy from or girl from the middle of Newcastle who's grown up in a more modest background suddenly finds themselves propelled into this this high octane world where everybody's looking at them um, 
and, and everybody's saying, oh, it must be great to be doing what you're doing. And it's such a privilege. Um, and I think that notion, I think, will help us understand um, athlete mental health and well-being. I think it would help us understand ideas of, and you very rarely hear this articulated, but respect at work, dignity at work, what those kinds of things look like for athletes. I, I, I found that endlessly fascinating. And, and, I, and, I, and I live quite close to a beach here, Anura in Newcastle. And I, I'm often down on the beach with a little notepad thinking through these kinds of ideas. How do, how do I go about undertaking research where I can get to some of these ideas? And I, and I find that a real challenge. If I was to be parachuted into a, a circumstance where I find myself next to someone, what is it that I'm going to talk about? How can I ethically, talk, ethically and morally talk about their journey in ways that doesn't make them feel like they're being used by some academic? But where they can sort of co-produce, and I know that's a very popular way of thinking now, but co or co-construct these kinds of ideas. Am I transplanting myself? And this has often been an accusation I felt that because I never really made it as a big time footballer. Um, although in my head I can still I still dream at night, Nura, of, of scoring winning <laughs> goals. Um, I still have that yeah. little boy inside of me. But, you know, am I, am I translating my experiences onto these athletes or are, are these real ideas? But I've, I've, I've spoken so many times to so many athletes who have, who have confirmed ways of thinking but also challenged my ways of thinking. Um, making sense of all of that, I think, is really, really hard. But I'm, I'm heading and starting to think much more about notions of privilege um, what that means in relation to the existence of athletes. I'm very interested in ideas around loneliness, seclusion, isolation, what, what that means in a contemporary social life. And, and again, go back to these notion, this notion of emotion. You know, in the UK, it's very easy to beat a Premier League footballer. Um, they're often held up as, as, you know, having everything but wasting it. People have can often have contempt for them. They're bad role models. Um, I think it's, you know, for, for others, they can be heroes. Um, and yet it's not popular, let me tell you, to do research on professional athletes because people were saying, you know, in that classic um, old sociological way, whose side are you on? Shouldn't we be on the on the side of, of, of those who don't have rather than those who are perceived to have and I'd really love to to do work where I challenge that in that sense you know what is it that some of these athletes have um, and I'm hopeful that looking through the lens perhaps of um, the anxieties brought out by privilege might be one way in which we can do that um, but again you know if anyone who's listening wants to help with this I'd certainly love to to um, generate uh, a project I think Nura that this is not just about the athletes themselves I know I I focus on the athletes and that is because um, at least at one point in time in my life I was one but I think you know if, if you were to speak to some of the sports science support people the coaches they would also be struggling 
for in, in many similar kinds of ways, and yet they are not represented particularly well um, by people like me, at the, at the very least. Um, but I suspect, you know, and I know this, you know, a coach, well, what could be better than to be a coach of a particular team under particular circumstances? Um, you know, when we fall back on that old time narrative where it's not the same as playing, but it's the next best thing. Well, second not, best. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I don't yeah. know about that. And, you know, mm. are the coaches, the strength and conditioning coaches, the nutritionists, the sport, sport psychologists, are they equally trapped without an ability to articulate their thoughts? Um, can they see problems, want to help an athlete, but be, be frightened of talking about ways to help because it unpopularly departs from that performance narrative? And I think therein lies some, some really fascinating um, uh, future discussions and ways in which I think for those of us who work in sport and exercise sciences, that we might be able to give back to more mainstream disciplines in, in more meaningful and better ways than perhaps we currently do. Mm. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. I think my one last question is going back to you said that you have these friends, uh, people who work in different organizations of sport, and you are sometimes being dismissed just being this academic who has some ideas, but maybe not this <laughs> uh, uh, practical, uh, you know, element to to what you do. So, I mean, we talked about a lot of these problems in in professional sport work and and the implications for athletes. And for example, the football academies, the, the athletes are selected so early. So, you know, a five year old is starting to feel that sport is work. So can we really see that the change would be happening? These are like big institutional and structural questions towards maybe a more healthy culture, a culture that supports, offers more possibilities for meaningful work and sustaining your mental health. Or do, do you see that the change would be happening and, And what would be some of the things that could be done to improve the situation? Yeah, it's a really, really devastating <laughs> question to ask me. I um, I I have um really good relationships with with some people in sport who are at the chalk face in a way that I simply am not, and it's very easy for me to have these kinds of ideas and. You know, I capture at times their attention with some of these ideas, but then they step back in front of a a group of, of boys or girls or men and women, and they've got to think, well, what's my what's the next thing I'm going to say? What's the next thing I'm going to do? And I, and so, how can you rewind and retrace your steps? And and if you could, would you what would you go back to? Was there a sort of an earlier period where things were better? And I'm not so sure that that there is. Yeah. <laughs> Some would say that we stop professional sport and we go back to the amateur sport that was <laughs> more pure. Well, <laughs> which is not the reality of course. No. <laughs> yeah. It is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know again I and I think there is something in that um you know the amount the amount of importance that wraps around it economically politically um is 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 unbelievable given the the history of sport but 
people have always placed importance on this, but I, you know, one of the things that 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 happened to me uh, uh, last year in the early stages of lockdown, and I had a conversation with a, a football coach who showed me a timetable for a a twelve to fourteen year old at their club, uh, and it involved so much. Um, and I was having a conversation at the same time that my own daughter, who's thirteen, was. Um, she was. She goes to a swimming club. She likes guides. She she um, likes trampolining. She does a whole bunch of things, and you know, and and I'm saying to myself, there's an internal person saying to myself, is she going to specialise in any one thing? And I've come to realise that 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 thing in my head that says, is she going to specialise, is that performance narrative that that I grew up with that that. Well, you've got to start to put, you know, those 10,000 hours don't come from nowhere, right? You've got to really put it in. But you know, the, the people, going back to an early point, earlier point in the, our conversation, the people who I felt were existentially securing themselves now as athletes were those who had that diversity. And so that's the one thing that, that I'm not unaware that you've got to really put your back into it. If you're going to be an Olympic swimmer or a gymnast, or a horse rider, or a track and field athlete. But it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy and benefit from other sports. And I would think that is the one thing that the professionalization of coaching has made a mistake with. I, I think coaches need to persuade their athletes to do more at younger ages than just the one sport that they are focused on, to fit that in, to, to enable people to feel like they're accomplishing in a variety of sports and it's, you know, and I, I listen to so many of my own friends who somehow collapse those options as being the most natural and right thing to do. If they're going to be competing with other kids at the right stages and at the right times in their lives. And that is the thing. In a lot of the football clubs that I go into, Nura, they are frightened of doing something different because so many other clubs are stepping up with the intensity of training that they are searching wider for talent, that they are um, bringing in earlier different ways of looking at athletes. And you don't want to be seen to be not doing the types of things that might attract the attention of the best talent. And I think that's the one thing that collectively, as sports scientists, we should be looking to do. We should be persuading people on the chalk face in these clubs, whether it's tennis golf, track and field athlete, athletics, skiing, ice hockey. I don't mind. It, it's it's about having that balance to a much older age in, in children's lives. It When you step, when you sign that contract at 16, as I did, it be, it's going to become hard whether you like it or not, right? There is no escaping that. <laughs> um, but I think Athletes at that point have become good because they've got themselves mentally prepared. They can get themselves up for events and tournaments. They understand intuitively about the ways in which they go about playing with others, talking to others. But that can come along with learning it in other sports and other ways of working and other ways of thinking. And I think it's that that I think is so important. It's that it's that the importance should be on ensuring that athletes 
can ask questions, can ask why they're doing something without feeling as though they're treading on somebody's toes, without feeling guilty about it, without feeling as though they shouldn't be asking that sort of a question uh, uh, and, and conforming in all the ways that, that we, we read in all the kind of research that, that we are bound up in doing. Otherwise, there are decades of really brilliant research from uh, you know the work of Katrina Douglas, the, the um, uh, myself, Loic Vacant's work, who I haven't mentioned, but he, I mean, his work is is utterly brilliant in terms of its the complexity of the ways in which he ties different ideas together. The, the, the people that have been doing research on forms of abuse in sport, you know, we can't waste that research. We, we can't, we've got to listen to it and we've got to try to help others to listen to it. Um, and small but meaningful differences can start to come in. There's not going to be one wholesale change. I, I keep saying to myself, well, I wonder whether uh, some of these huge issues that we come across, the huge issue in gymnastics more recently, um, is this going to offer the step change that we've been looking for? And it, it never does. Um, it's got to come through re-education of our own students who then go on to work in these industries and can bring, bring and provide a different way of thinking and who be might, who might be brave enough to stick with it. Yeah. But I think not to be too pessimistic, but I think a completely another line of research is obviously to look at the working lives of coaches or anyone else who is working in, in one of these support roles because their working lives can be even more precarious than the athletes. So how many coaches are really in a position that they can experiment with different ways of doing things and still have a contract next year. So they yeah. are also in the situation where it's very difficult to do things yeah. differently. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But going back to my, the very early sociological training I had was from, from Eric Dunning, um, who we sadly lost a couple of years ago, he would talk about, you know, the sort of wider networks of interdependency and talk about figurational sociology. And um, and there are very few studies in Dunura that are, that are broader in scope than looking at the viewpoints of, of particular kind of individuals. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but I, I again, I would love to be part of a bigger project which, which tied these contradictions together i think this is why it's so such an interesting area in terms of sports work um looking at the variety of people who are bound up and the kinds of questions that they are asking themselves and the implications for themselves of having to ask those questions but knowing there's very little that they can do um you know and and helping us all to come to a, a arrive at a place where perhaps we can collectively work towards um, not such a dismal view of the future of sport. I mean, I, I, I remain hopeful that, that all the work that myself and perhaps the listeners to this podcast do can help bring about the kinds of lives that we would love, you know, um, to see. I, I, I strive to make happy athletes, not successful athletes. And I think if you can make someone happy, that they they might naturally be more successful and they might see the meaning of sport in ways that perhaps they don't necessarily see it at this point in time. Mm. I think these are really wonderful closing words for our conversation and there have been many invitations for collaboration so 
anyone who is interested in ideas, <laughs> Martin is happy to hear from you, right? Yes. Yes. So thank you so much for this discussion. A lot of interesting ideas and, and I'm sure this will be very interesting for listeners as well. So well, thank you. Thank you very much for your in invitation, Nora. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Through Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.